0: Today's episode is part of a series on borderlands and sound. This is the first episode. It's about what different sounds like, how boundaries are heard and listened for, how belonging is voiced and performed through music. It takes place in Mexico, the United States, and in between the two, and brings up the nation, migration, belonging and exclusion, and the way all these manifest in sound. Our guest today is Alex Chavez. A scholar, musician, producer, and author of Sounds of Crossing, published at Duke in 2017, which we bring up throughout the episode. For No Specific Radio, this is Anthropod. We hope you enjoy what follows.
1: I'm Alex Chavez. I uh, teach anthropology. I'm a musician, artist, scholar, composer, producer, And I'm based in Chicago right now, but I've done a lot of work academically around sound and orality, but with specific kind of interest in Latinos in the United States. So some of my work has dealt with language and music, poetics. I wrote a book called Sounds of Crossing that deals with one particular music genre, a panguaribeño, that sort of encompasses all those things I just described, and Beyond that, yeah, again, musician, artist, producer, and we can get into that if you want.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you say a bit more about your musical practice?
1: Yeah, well, I uh, I come from a musical family, so you know, music was always around, you know, growing up, particularly my father, who, uh, who played music. He sang, played guitar, but he played in professional projects, uh, and so Made records and etc., but he and 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 my mother actually they they're they're both from Mexico and they migrated to the United States in the uh, early nineteen seventies, and so I I was subsequently born in in Texas where they where they migrated to. But yeah, so you know, musical family and I and I, you know, something I realized later in life is that sense of kind of my. Attachment to music and, and art in that regard is, is generational beyond my father. So, my, my grandfather and great grandfather were musicians, and in particular, they played uh, the music that I just mentioned, the uh, Huapango, Huapango you know, Arribeño, in the state of Querétaro uh, in north central Mexico. And so, actually, one recording that I kind of included for today is actually a field recording that I, I didn't do, but it's one that's archival in a sense. It's from the early 1970s. It's a recording done in a small rural hamlet called San Isidro in the municipality of Pinal de Amoles in the state of Querétaro and it's actually um, a huapango. You'll tell by the audio quality that it's an older recording Mm -hmm. but it's my grandfather and his two brothers who who mm-hmm. formed a trio and they, they played for decades all around Queretaro, this music. of mine, a Wapango teacher of mine. Uh, His name is Proceso Sanchez. He's a violinist. Mm He, you know, began playing Wapango music as as a kid, as a child. Part of what you know drew him to it was being a child and going to fiestas, going to gatherings where Wapango music making was happening. And so he recalls that as a kid, by that time, as an adolescent, Mm -hmm. you know, he... And and other friends, they would try to make recordings of some of the people that they would hear. And this is one of them. Uh, And so he had these old tapes. And so he, he, you know, and he knew who my grandfather was. And rather, he knew that I was, you know, his grandson. So he's like, I actually have these old recordings. (laughs) And so we listened to them. And I made, he let me make copies of of them. And so this is, you know, I can imagine him late at night with the, you know, big boom bops recorder you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: huddled huddled around <laughs> wherever this was happening outside for sure mm-hmm. um, and just kind of recording this, uh, this, uh, this performance and what they're playing is a version of a traditional song called, called Las Flores or The Flowers mm-hmm. so, you know I, I met my grandfather once mm-hmm. I was like seven, seven eight years old uh, cause I, I, I didn't grow up with him. I didn't know him. And so, uh, but I met him once in, in, in Mexico. Um, and then a year later, he, he passed away. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I never really had a relationship with this person.
2: Yeah.
1: And so uh, it's through these recordings that I, you know, was able to get some sense of, of his art. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in terms of my musical practice, you know, beyond Coming from a musical family, I'm you know multi instrumentalist. I began playing piano and then learning guitars. I was kind of an adolescent teenager and then at that time too I got really interested in in Mexican folk music kinda of more broadly. I mean it was around, but I didn't play it. I mean I you know, growing up in the States there was really no clear connection to how to do that, but once mm-hmm. I, I got really interested in wanting to learn, which basically meant like picking up some of these instruments. Began to do that when my family and I would travel down to Mexico, and so I would meet musicians. Many of them were family friends, and just begin, you know, I began to learn from them. Uh, so I, I play a number of of kind of traditional folk instruments in the Huapango genre, but also other other
2: mm-hmm.
0: other
1: styles to stay pretty pretty active. <laughs>
0: And you find the time somehow to be also an anthropologist?
1: I was a musician way before I became an anthropologist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How did it inform your your practice as an anthropologist to have been a musician first?
1: Yeah, I, you know, consistently crossed that boundary between artist and scholar, being a professional musician, but then also like engaging in music making alongside the people I've done research with. And so what that's done, you know, is kind of transformed my experiences into kind of a unique understanding Mm
2: -hmm.
1: of how people cross various types of borders. And that's sort of at the center of a lot of the work that I do beyond what I mentioned before, which is my concern with expressive culture with a focus on sound and orality. And, you know, how how it is that um, Latinx communities leverage sonic practices as aesthetic and communicative resources to kind of negotiate the transnational or national social structures in which they're positioned, right? What is the political efficacy of all that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one idea, analytic notion to kind of, that lends some perspective on that is is this, this question of borders or borderlands, uh, to speak kind of in the parlance of Mm-hmm. Kind of borderlands anthropology, so so that's one thing. But you know, then kind of embodying, and, you know, from my perspective, the the in betweenness of artist scholar or how you think about art as a process of knowledge production or how mm-hmm. you know intellectual projects might have an aesthetic dimension.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That sort of back and forth. And yeah, I mean, it, it has very much at least giving me a kind of unique perspective on, on border crossing in, in a way and, and you know.
0: This might be the same question. If it is, just tell me. Did being an ethnographer also affect the way you play music or is it mostly one way around?
1: I'd say not how I play music, you know, like... Yeah. Te- technically or in that regard, but, but perhaps it has shaped my appreciation of of music Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or or musical forms right i mean when you kind of have kind of a tune a kind of ethnographic ear to what's happening in in musical practice as -hmm. an appreciator for instance yeah you you i don't know maybe you begin to ask certain kinds of questions uh that are about that are historical or about the social dimensions of kind of aesthetic practices um Mm -hmm. you know and how they open up worlds that maybe otherwise you know you might not reflect on as much who knows but for me that that's that's one kind of slice of i think that relationship but also i think and not again not so much how i play music but i i will say maybe and this is more recent Mm
2: -hmm.
1: particular approaches to composition so I think is is, is one way uh, that that relationship has played itself out, yeah. and and so what I mean by that is that so and I'll give you a very concrete example. So I'm mm-hmm. right now working on this project that, uh, called Sonorous Present, um, and it's a creative project that actually grows out of Sounds of Crossing, out of the book, but specifically the way it, it grew out of that is that. I was fortunate enough to give a number of talks, you know, nationally, internationally around the book, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes I I gave kind of more of a quote-unquote traditional lecture, and then sometimes I did something that was more performative, so I would incorporate music performance, storytelling, or what kind of ethnographic songwriting in Mm -hmm. part into how I was... talking about the material of presenting it in kind of more public forums. And so, and I often did that just alone, just me. And, uh, I kind of, I don't know, had this idea of like, what, you know, how to maybe recreate that in a live music kind of ensemble. Mm-hmm. So long story short, uh, I did put together uh, an ensemble here in Chicago and, uh, titling it Sonorous Present after a a concept that I invoke in the book but Mm -hmm. yeah it was really great it was a number of people and it was sort of really these Chicago luminaries in the world from jazz to traditional Mexican music and Mm -hmm. but we only performed once you know I I think we did it once and then I, I you know was kind of inspired to try to attempt to grow the project and I was able to I was awarded a couple of grants to do that, mm-hmm. and but then COVID happens, and so you know we couldn't grow the project in a live setting. I mean, there was no way to do that. So my thought was to pivot into recording an album because I, I knew I wanted to do that at some point, but but my I wasn't interested in doing that right away because there wouldn't be the opportunity to grow the project because i wasn't interested in just kind of documenting what we had done live i mean that was just the you know mm-hmm. one particular experience or iteration of that but since we couldn't grow it live and making an album seemed you know like the logical next step and most appropriate given the you know what's going on with covid i reached out to quetzal flores from the band quetzal in los angeles california he's a Grammy Award-winning producer, friend of mine for a long time. Uh, he's a partner, a husband of Marta Gonzalez, who's, you know, she's sort of the band leader, front woman of, of Quetzal, and she's also a professor, actually, at Scripps College. And and I asked him to come and produce, basically come and produce this record. And so that's what we've been doing, m- making this album. But my point being that in the context of of m- translating this live performance aspect of storytelling, of narrative, of song, of ethnographic songwriting, it's very hard, I think, to translate that onto a record. I mean, it works Mm. in a live setting, but on record, it's a bit different. And so one of the things that we started to do, and you know, that was really key in, in terms of kind of beginning to curate this was to incorporate actual field recordings as part of compositions okay right so rather than talk about the field or talk Mm -hmm. about or or sort of tell the story of you know it's like what do i have sonic representations of Mm -hmm. those those moments and i did i mean i have you know entire archive of all the work (laughs) i did over a decade and so yeah we began to sort of dig through things and pick pick out certain sounds certain Representations of my experiences, or communities I was working with, or the sort of world mm-hmm. of performance that then became the foundation for for a lot of the 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 music that's that's you know on on this
2: mm-hmm.
1: album. And so uh, one example is actually one of these um, field recordings. This is actual field recording. So there's one uh, field recording. So what this what this recording is, is actually me leaving, and this is from like 2007, 2008, so, so okay. quite, a, quite a while ago. But it's, uh you know, these, well, your performances are all night performances, mm-hmm. you know, and so this is a recording of me leaving early in the morning at about 6 a.m. So you can hear the music still, it's already dying down, but because one of the ensembles is still performing. So, but you see, you can hear, kind of echoes of that music and then you hear me walking basically Mm -hmm. kind of uh, it's kind of a mile walk to the nearest major thoroughfare Uh, i was going to catch a a cab to to go where i was staying but so what you hear is this music fading and the entire kind of morning and and kind of surround coming alive Mm -hmm. from the wildlife to the creek i was walking next to traffic all these things and so yeah, I made that recording 2007, 2008, it was. And so we used this recording, me walking, as a foundation for a spoken word piece that person I'm collaborating with named Roger Reeves. He's a poet. Mm-hmm. So he, he sort of tells a particular story. But then what we did is there... You can clearly hear my footsteps the entire time. So what we ended up doing is we... Very kind of hip-hop aesthetic, where we an approach to production where we picked a portion of my footsteps, calibrated them to a particular BPM <laughs> tempo, and then just sort of loop them, mm-hmm. so that they they kind of provide the rhythmic foundation for the musical composition that then follows. sort of collapses this sense in in the book when I sort of space and embodiment and temporality. You know, so there there are moments in the book where I write about how troubadour poets pick up the call of of greeting or or sort of crafting improvised greetings Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as a request to people that aren't in attendance. Uh, And there's a kind of a hearkening magic to that because they take up those calls without hesitation. And the reason why is because there is this belief, you know, in terms of like these bonds of sociability that are crafted through performance that through improvised poetics, Mm -hmm. you sort of create these kind of cultural and spatial and temporal adjacencies in the moment. Because in some ways it's it's really not about whether the intended person can hear this greeting. Clearly they can't Mm -hmm. because they're not there, Mm -hmm. but it's about how they, their presence is brought into that present moment such that, you know, the person who requests the greeting for somebody, you know, that improvised poetics is just as really shaking that person's hand Mm -hmm. in that moment. So, and it's all, you know, it's all sonic. It's all about orality. So I, you know, use this idea of the sonorous present to kind of represent this, this, this moment of of, um, of you know, these moments of congregation that are moving, one moving in, in terms of the, literally because they're animating pattern, footsteps and dance, you know, this music is, you know, sonic filigree and the strumming and the kind of six, eight, you know, music and everything is, is, you know, it, it, you can hear it's washing over you and it's, you know, people are dancing. So, you know, but it's also moving, in terms of it's emotive. So think like move to tears, right? So it mm-hmm. it is emotive in that regard. And so to to think about that experience, you know, this notion of sonorous present is something that I that I talk about okay. now in the context of the project. It means all those things, <laughs> but I also interpreted it as sonorous present present as gift. Okay. So yeah.
0: Okay, maybe we should get into the the book itself. I guess there was two directions that I imagined this going. One, I mean, we could do both, but one is about the sound and the nation, and the other one is about musics and politics. Does the nation sound like anything? Or
1: short answer: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why we that's why we have these debates, mm-hmm. you know, around national official language and particularly English only initiatives and all the rest right Mm -hmm. clearly there's a way that the nation becomes embodied through language and then therefore through sound right yeah uh so in relation to to music Mm -hmm. I don't know I I feel like my my thinking about it is tethered to a number of other people who have been writing about this but I'll, I'll sort of kind of get into it, is that, so Josh Kuhn in the book Audiotopia, he, he makes a case for how the kind of American racial imaginary has been generated in part through experiences of music and through experiences of sound. So mm-hmm. there's a way that selective listening has constructed kind of an aural harmony
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the service of the project of U.S. white racial hegemony. Mm-hmm. Because what it does, it, it silences the kind of presumed dissonance that racial and ethnic difference introduce. So within that context, he argues that you know those differences ultimately sound out against the kind of constraints of kind of this monocultural vision of American citizenship. Mm-hmm. That it, it they have the capacity to disturb the kind of national aesthetic of unisonance, right? Mm-hmm. A, a, a one singular sound and so and i think that's all true and i think that you know in sounds of crossing i ex- I extend that argument suggest that the kind of the construction of what he's calling the american audio racial imagination is not only about how america hears itself kind of domestically but equally about what it hears itself against
2: mm-hmm.
1: those sounds from outside for instance outside its national border so in other words that the sort of policing of American national culture, like, for instance, in these English only kind of initiatives and all the rest. But that policing is definitely the sort of segregationist project that necessarily kind of extends its aural mm-hmm. attention beyond the physical space of the nation. Right. So mm-hmm. and even though kind of muting the kind of audible resonance of these sonic cultural flow, flows across national borders is really impossible that these emergent transnational musical geographies, that they reach into, into nation states that, and often resignify and appropriate to affect social silences in the service of kind of broader nationalist projects. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book at the beginning is this notion of a Mexican sound, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it, that it has, in a sense, if you think about musically, bled, quote unquote, into the space of the U.S. nation state Mm -hmm. in this kind of dialectical fashion, right? Because throughout, particularly the 20th century, Mexican music as kind of an audible signifier is one of an otherness which the United States has defined its own racial project Mm -hmm. uh, against. So among other things, Mexican music in the American kind of mainstream appears as a racialized index. And it connotes oftentimes, and I'm sure listeners can sort of imagine this, but. Mm -hmm it often connotes like primal festivity Mm -hmm. or that it's carefree and unserious expression, that it's pastoral backwardness, you know, and so this is an oral construction and it, it owes, you know, also a lot of its power to the kind of project of Mexican musical nationalism, but that's another discussion. But I think that, all of this sonically, what does it mean to kind of to answer your question that, that, that yes, sound participates in the kind of U.S. racial market structure, right, as, a, you know, particularly Mexican music probably conceived as a kind of sonic index for a derided Mexican otherness, mm-hmm.
2: you
1: know, and, and, you know, that's definitely part of kind of this national kind of imagining that, again, you know, to me to, to kind of fold the kind of argument back in on itself that it is it is you know, there's, there's an aspect of this that is sonic in, in nature. And for the purposes of this book, I, I, I deal with music uh, more more broadly. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: How does that support or contradict other kind of difference-making practices based on visuality or other hmm. senses?
1: I don't know if it contradicts or is better than or, you know. I, I wouldn't put the sensorial in -hmm. aspects of the sensorial and sort of degrees of relative social worth i think they're all Mm
2: -hmm.
1: interesting and valid and and revealing I i think maybe one way to to think about this is um this concept that i animate in the book at least to lend some specificity to sound and particular orality or the condition of listening and that is, I, I sort of mobilize this concept of oral, uh, aural, a u r a l poetics, mm-hmm. uh, to, divert, to, to refer to this interplay between embodiment and aesthetics,
2: yeah.
1: and, and and in in doing so, which, which you know clearly all, all sort of senses are, are embodied, right? So, but in doing so, I'm, I'm kind of relying on uh, actually uh, Jose Limón, uh, anthropologist. Mm-hmm his designation of cultural poetics, cultural poetics as kind of these acts of cultural interpretation that are aesthetically salient and in some ways like culturally embedded textualities and enactments. And, you know, what I'm doing is is completely overlaps with with his designation that I just described, Mm -hmm. but I sort of, I augmented with the term aural, right? to lend specificity to the field of aesthetic cultural production that concerns sound and specifically sort of these musical poetic textualities that are what panguaribeño and how they're made legible through this kind of relational process of sonic enactment and reception you know and that's a process that kind of possesses its own aesthetic sensibility and so or poetics right so then if that's sort of the focus to, to think about sound and relation to the senses, and maybe to circle back to to your earlier question around ethnography, then you know there was this you know attempt for me to lend this music what Vi Erman calls an ethnographic ear right
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you know it, it's telling a story that's broadcast through the perpetual field of voicing. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, and the concept of the voice is interesting, right? Because there's a very literal material sense of it, right? What you hear, right? That's sort of as, a, as kind of a, something sonic in scope, but also the voice as subjectivity, right? And so like mm-hmm. when someone says like, I have a voice, what yeah. do they mean? Is, right? I have an identity. I have a claim. I have,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I matter. And so I think voicing kind of collapses that binary, right? between the material and sonorous aspects or material sonorous aspects of sound and the immaterial agentive and political meanings of sound. And so lending an ethnographic ear was lending attention to that. Yes, sounds, right? Mm-hmm. In their kind of literalness, but also like their meaning, right? Their their sort of positionality and what that revealed in a way to think about why sound well you know it's my position that you know to think about the kind of social life of sound phenomenologically that you know sound is heard through culturally and historically situated forms of listening
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right these modes of attention that circulate within sort of fields of meaning and experience that are always contoured by power politics economy so to claim that voicing matters that is that it resonates materially and immaterially i think is to account for this embodied musical poetic performance Mm -hmm. as a form of communication that is attuned to living or migrant life across borders so you know that's at least for me what sound enabled and to conclude like that within the context and therefore migrant life, is to therefore necessarily attend to this issue of borders and borderlands, which necessarily brings up, to your first point, mm-hmm. this question of the, of the nation.
0: What makes Bengo more telling of the transnational migrant world you described than other musics?
1: I would say it, it does necessarily, you know, because, and I'm here, I'm kind of falling on the work of, there's a lot of scholarship, you know, on music culture, music making in kind of proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border and or within the context of borderlands. So, in other words, that they sort of were people doing research and work and sort of telling the story of how sort of music participates in sort of the story of of kind of the migrant experience. And you know, and this is stuff for everything from like the Hano music to banda, norteña. Chicano Punk, my dad, all kinds of stuff. Or mm-hmm. uh, Nortech comes to mind too, Alejandro Madrid's work. And a lot of that work is is very much attends to the kind of the very complex cultural exchanges within the kind of this broader sense of, of Latin American social formation, transhemispheric, and, and much of it to sort of theorizing and around the kind of consumptive politics of pop culture or the kind of transnational flows of these musical symbolic formations etc i think one difference here and i think all those are really important kinds of testaments to this sort of trans trans transnational
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of cultural formation within which we so sort of can locate the migrant experience i think one distinctiveness what one distinctive aspect at least of this guapan even though it sort of circulates alongside you know those musical forms it it possesses its own kind of unique circuit of circulation mm-hmm. distinct from those public pub music because you know you know offering a, a complementary perspective but i think in part because it is this this kind of embodied aesthetic it's this performance right it's it's not it doesn't really circulate and even though you know have this example of the smithsonian folkways album which is really singular and unique but it doesn't circulate in the same ways as like you know musica norteña or something so so there's a difference there. so then in other words it it, you know had the potential to tell another sort of dimension of the sort of the story of migration and so there's um kind of an element here of again maybe even to return to kind of more things we were talking about earlier that Honing in on this particular expressive practice, right poetic, musical, embodied, I think afforded a couple of things for me that sort of came, you know, be, began to understand, right? And that is that kinds of social processes that are shaping the dynamic of difference-making in the United States, particularly operative and constructing Latinxes within the U.S. racial formation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: How how this is continuously being reproduced. And so... What what does that mean? That means that there is uh, what Leo Chavez calls this kind of broader, generalizable sense of a Latino mm-hmm. threat, and most of it tethered to kind of migrants, mm-hmm.
2: right?
1: border crossers. I mean, we see what's happening on the border right now: sort of zero tolerance policies, the denying mm-hmm. of asylum to people seeking asylum, etc. Like so, that as a kind of part of the kind of the American racial project, it illuminated, you know, or or sort of brings to light this kind of broader sense of things if, if that's a context here a situation how is it then that migrants are lending meaning to their own migration oftentimes it happens like this in these ways right mm-hmm. through performance you know through performance through improvised poetics through you know these embodied aesthetic forms that in the moment you know sort of refigure and you know, these questions around citizenship, belonging, crossing, all the yep. rest. I mean, one thing the things I always say is that I'm interested in, in what border crossings sound like. And, uh, you know, this particular musical form is, is one such sound. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: that said, there's this particular musical kind of example here. It's actually a field recording in Mexico of the group Guillermo Velasquez y los Leones de la Sierra de Hichu, uh, and so it's the same group that I, I are on the Smithsonian Folkways album mm-hmm. but this is a field recording and this is kind of the story behind this this is a field recording in Hichu, Guanajuato on what would be on New Year's Day but like at about 3 or 4 in the morning so every, every year there's a kind of Festival community festival performance of Wapango Ribeño, and very quickly the kind of ideal context, I suppose, for Wapango Ribeño is what people call a topada, from the word topar to collide. Mm-hmm. And what it is what it is, is 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 a musical and poetic kind of dual, dual and musical exchange that lasts for hours between two ensembles, <laughs> between two Wapango Ribeño ensembles. So it's like musical and poetic flighting and dueling. Mm-hmm. For hours and and this is uh, this is what this recording is of it's los leones playing at a topada this is like three or four in the morning and it's this kind of really wonderful example in my mind of of the kind of verve and energy of these moments of congregation where the sort of music takes flight and you know all of this is sort of kind of this cascading kind of improvised poetics and music and sonic filigree kind of washing over you in this way that is quite has the ability to transport you and and you'll hear that there's an aspect of this music that is quite repetitive but it's it's a total groove you know it, you you kind of live in it and you just kind of let it take you and this is precisely what you see on the dance floor because these two ensembles are positioned on opposite this is outside and so they're positioned on the opposite sides of the central plaza, mm-hmm. and there are thousands of people in between them dancing. <laughs> this is, you know, this is what it sounds like, uh, New Year's Day in Huitzihuantejo, about three or four in the morning. There isn't, nothing, there isn't anything necessarily inherently political about this music. Right? And that's not the claim that I make. You know, so like, I'll, I'll say two things. I'll say like one, that in some ways the secret of the book is that you know, it's actually not about this music.
2: <laughs>
1: it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's about, you know, how this particular expressive practice, this cultural form, offers a window into the contemporary conditions of migrant life.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Mexican migrant life in particular, which then brings up these broader questions, which is what I'm most interested in across all of my research is what well Mm -hmm. borders, citizenship, the nation, race. So there's that, right? (laughs) That's the kind of secret of the book. But I mean, I guess to your point and to my, what I sort of mentioned earlier is that, yeah, no, it's not so much that there's inherent politics in that regard mm-hmm. in in the, in the, in this an kind of overt way, right. We like protest music or what yeah. have you, right. In terms of this music. But what I will say is that I said, it's the context in which this music becomes politicized
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that's the story. So, you know, there, there's nothing necessarily inherently political about, you know, in a performance in central Texas where Troubadour poets are sort of casting out improvised verses into the night about the kind of work a day, experiences of people, who they are, their relationships,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. But it's the very fact that that's all happening vis-à-vis the sort of both quite, you know, sort of juridical, violences and kind of narrative violence of the project of illegality in this country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when, you know, migrants are at best illegals, at worst rapists, drop and leave culprits, anchor babies, all discourse of that ilk, that's a particular narrative space that exists and that we all sort of encounter and that they have to sort of live within that violence. So then when they themselves then narrate their own experiences in in ways that are quite distinct from that sort of recuperate a kind of intimacy around living across borders, calling multiple places home, the connections between all the in other words, not an illegal, but a mother, Mm -hmm. a daughter, a father, a son there's a way in which that narrative and therefore that has a particular kind of uh, Mm -hmm. resonance to continue on with the kind of sonic metaphor and so where there's an amplifying of those experiences and so that's part of the journey of, of kind of and one revelation in the book and one thing that sort of I, I try to trace out so there's a piece it's actually it's a track it's called brota mi canto y Sufana." my voice uh, springs forth loudly it's sung by Isabel Flores Chave Flores who's a member of Los Leones de la Sierra de Hichu. Uh, they're a group from Hichu, Guanajuato this is a track actually off the Smithsonian Folkways album, uh, Serrano de Corazon, Highlander at Heart, which I had the wonderful opportunity to, um, to produce. It's a multi-year project, but we with Smithsonian Folkways uh, recordings, went down to Mexico, made this album. It's, it's available everywhere. But one of the really cool things beyond just producing was um, so people listening along, if, if you go to Smithsonian Folkways and look up this record Mm-hmm. Um, you can download the liner notes uh, which will give you all the lyrics and their translations
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I got to write those liner notes which is a really fun experience <laughs> it's one of the things that I love a lot about Folkways records is you know they come with these really wonderful extensive liner notes that give you context and story and
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I was able to do that so that this is yeah this is a track called mm-hmm. and it's Chave Flores singing and it's really wonderful she's narrating the sort of story around being a a mexican woman
2: Mm -hmm. right
1: and and really kind of illuminating contradictions undermining stereotypes kind of really claiming kind of powerful sort of subjectivity i think that she's sort of crafting in in this set of of decimas that are part of this track and so you know in, in a way not about migration clearly but it it is an example of the sort of narrative space of performance when it comes to what's mm-hmm. happening through, or what can happen through Guapanguerribeño and the moments in which it takes on these other, has a more politicized dimensions.
3: Brota mi canto y por el temple y la energía y por la de la mujer mexicana Y en mi hogar he podido florecer Yo soy chave y soy mujer Y para tener que dar Recibí el don de cantar Y jichulense y serrana Como agua limpia que emana Después de los aguaceros De muy profundos veneros Brota mi canto y se ufana. mamá y mi abuela supe de lunas y soles de coser unos frijoles y cultivar la parcela de un jarrito de canela o de café cuando había. Vengo de una dinastía y de una clase de mujer que supo hacerse valer por su temple y su energía.
0: Uh, you mentioned you know developing ethnographic ears during field work. does that does that mean you learn to pay particular attention to some things or
1: For me, it's a, well, what animates the desire to sort of you know to approach things in this way? I think kind of one obvious <laughs> sort of reason why is that like, well, I'm dealing with music, right? So there's a way that you know orality, is key, is going to be important, I think. But the other thing, you know, is that, and I, I, did t- I talk about this in the book, is that within the broader project of anthropology, more specifically, the sort of methodological practices of, of ethnography, that the interview, oftentimes, which is like the kind of methodological approach we rely on most,
2: mm-hmm.
1: can, can, you know, can impede us from gaining competence, for instance, in like particular repertoires. And modes of communication that are particular to the people that we're working with Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so it sort of has this conventional meta communicative kind of routine that veils its own performative capacity right the interview and so (laughs) i found that you know okay well like i didn't interview people till years later after you know sort of playing music alongside with them. So I I actually that's how I came to the project. I was playing this music. Mm-hmm. You know, and then sort of it you know, became this kind of more you know, official, you know, research kind of project, but and sort of approaching things in this kind of way through the kind of ethnographic performance, right? So me like engaging in music making alongside people and or relying on sort of performance as a way to kind of gain insight i think definitely had to attune you to to listening in this sort of very intimate and embodied way so for instance there's so many things particularly i think it is chapter two where i really detail the sort of the form right Mm -hmm. uh the musical form there's so much of that that like I realized I could have asked sort of questions in kind of an interview context, and I, I, frankly, I do believe, I know this, I wouldn't have understood it in that way. <laughs> um, would have been a very different experience, mm-hmm. as as opposed to having to learn how to do it. Yeah, you know, and 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 um, having the sort of experience of of engaging in the sort of the sort of bonds of sociability that emerge through. Performance in this way. Uh, and so where where certain things, certain processes, certain approaches sort of reveal themselves. Part of that, I guess to your question, right, was yeah, the other sort of kind of attunement that you know involves your active listening. It, it involves sort of new experiences or being open to them. You know, but you know, in a way too, it's 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 also just to borrow from kind of linguistic kind of anthropology, it's also kind of like metapragmatic because when you think about like talk about talk you know this is there's there's a way that through performance you really get a sense of how the sort of the vernacular theorizing that's happening around performance through performance itself and and so that I think was very key to, to me um, in terms of having this particular I guess ethnographic or you know choosing to to go in that direction
0: I just really want to talk about the music sheets Mm -hmm. before I let you go so there's lots of them in there the general question would be why did you put them in there and then just maybe some more specific questions about is this broadening the scope of your audience or is it do you know what kind of effect it produced or do you even care (laughs)
1: that's that's a good question a few things so there was I think an aspect of doing that for kind of posterity Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know doing the 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 engraving and having the the sort of musical transcriptions there uh so kind of posterity kind of archival in a sense I think also you know I, I also understood and imagined and and that has been the case that like I, you know, that this work was going to be speaking to multiple audiences, including those from kind of an ethnomusicological perspective that would be, you know, interested in, in sort of musical transcription. I think also, you know, there's just, this is kind of my perspective also like, well, why not? <laughs> right, you know th- this music is why wouldn't it be deserving of being sort of represented that way
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know all, all those things were, were kind of part of the decision process of, of of kind of doing that you know from from my from my perspective.
0: Do you know if anyone played the book to themselves or to other people?
1: Oh, I don't know to be honest with you but I mean I know that uh i I worked quite closely with know the people doing the kind of engraving and transcription so Mm -hmm. you know we did have to sort of (laughs) play it (laughs) to make sure it it was a an accurate enough representation Mm
2: -hmm.
1: of of it yeah so and you know there's there's also the kind of element of which is interesting and i actually engaged in this conversation before which was animated by this particular question is that that there seems to be a lot of music scholarship where whatever style is being written on the sometimes there isn't an in-depth kind of description of, of the sounds themselves. <laughs> so, uh, and whether it takes a form of transcription or otherwise
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and that's, and that's fine. You know, I, I, don't have a preference one way or the other, but I, but I do notice that pattern. So part of me was like, why? Well, you know, there are other forms of Mexican music maybe that like, appreciators of mexican music or just general sort of who have kind of a lay understanding or reference you might have some sense of it or some memory of it or Mm -hmm. whatever but not with this music unless you're from that region and you i have to really you know try to illustrate you know what what is this what does it sound like
0: i'm just looking at the last question on the on the thing here I'm not sure it's a relevant one. But you do write beautifully. So if you have something to say about the way you listen oh, the... to your own writing, if you have something to say okay. about this.
1: I was um really inspired by these musicians, these poets mm-hmm. and what they do, you know. So I, I felt that you know, it's always a challenge when we think about it, you know, ethnography and, you know, which part of it involves like Sort of renderings and textual form, it can be difficult to represent something, and there's always a politics involved. But I think beyond that, just at the level of you know, just the act of writing, it can be difficult to um, to represent or have the writing kind of embody the energy or sort of presence of of what it is that you're, you know what the work is what the context was what the quote-unquote topic is uh and i think that's always a challenge and no less you know and you know with respect to this book and so what i attempted to do you know it's up to readers such as yourself to you know determine whether i did so or not but try to um write and approach the writing in the vein of of the people i was working with in terms of their poetry their their art in order to be able to represent the, the sort of the verve and vitality of of these settings of this community of their aesthetics of their art <laughs>